Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Dr. Deborah Savage is a professor at the School of Theology and Philosophy at Franciscan University, and we are spending the next hour with her. The theme, masculine genius, the importance of fathers, and the complementarity of man and woman. My name is Brooke Taylor. In for Timory, this is trending. Is society trying to erase men? Is there a war on men? What is masculine genius? We hear a lot about feminine genius, but what is man's genius? Those are just some of the themes we're going to explore that Dr. Savage has dedicated years to study and write about, research and lecture about, and that's what we're going to explore today. One triple eight nine one four nine one four nine is the studio line to call. Dr. Deborah Savage, a professor of theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville, she taught both philosophy and theology at the St. Paul Seminary School of Divinity at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, for thirteen years. She is also the co-founder and acting director of the Siena Symposium for Women, Family, and Culture, which is a critically, crucially important interdisciplinary think tank organized to respond to John Paul II's call for a new and explicitly Christian feminism. And we are so grateful for that work and delighted to welcome Dr. Savage to the program. Hello, Dr. Savage. Hi. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, I feel blessed by the timing of it. This is the eve of the Memorial of St. Francis of Assisi, and you are joining us from Franciscan University, so that was delightful. Yes, I know. You know, the intellectual Franciscan tradition very much focuses on the human person as as divine image. Humanity connects us with God. St. Francis lived that. Yes. Certainly. <laughs> so we're going, we're going oh, to talk a lot yeah, about, about that today from sure. man and woman. Yeah. And yeah. it's interesting because my son is a freshman at Franciscan and on the first day of class, he had a chance to attend one of your lectures on, on the complementarity of male and female. And he said, Mom, you have to interview yeah. Dr. Savage. So I thought that was oh. neat because sometimes the university crowd, that age group can be a, a tough age uh, to please. Right. Yeah, that's true. But I find I've given similar talks, uh, you know, quite a few of them over the years, either when I, before I joined the faculty and more recently, and I get the same response every time. There's a kind of sigh of relief in the room when I mention there's actually a masculine genius and some laughter, too, because, of course, men don't really expect a woman to bring that up. <laughs> and and also a feeling of... Um, I, I've actually seen 
a kind of joy because I talk about the beauty of both men and women and their important roles in the task of human living, their, you know, who they are as persons in their own right. And it's just really the most wonderful thing. And of course, the question of our era, really, you know, so I'm very fortunate to have fallen into this. I believe I've been led by John Paul II, as a matter of fact, whom I've been praying to even before he became a saint, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And there's, Oops, you know, when it's, <laughs> you, you are the, you are the woman for the job. I mean, it's, it's very clear I when think, you listen and, and read your writings. And I think it's good we have an hour with you because there is so many mm-hmm. facets of this to explore. You know, we are in a war on gender and it's the attack on the family, the cycle of absent fathers, attack on male and female, human dignity, gender ideology, and just, I think, an overall lack of understanding of what it means to truly flourish as a man and a woman. And so I'm curious, I guess, for you, you just cited John Paul II there, but you've studied gender with the discipline of Catholic theology for years now, but what drew you to these themes in that study? Well, I, there's a few things that happen. One is I can honestly say that I've had this question for, you know, I think maybe all my life, uh, as soon as I was old enough to realize it was even a question, and that would be, what does it actually mean to be a woman? And I wanted nothing more than to become a real woman. And I would say that to myself, even in high school. And I didn't know what I was even talking about, but I just felt like it was so curious to be a woman. And of course, you know, in a certain way in a man's world, but I never really resented that or thought of it that way. It was just, I could never really get a handle on that. What, what, what would it take? Um, Some instinct about it, I suppose. And then of course, my first research area was really into the meaning of human work. Um, My dissertation was on the subjective dimension of human work because I was in business for for a number of years before making the transition to the study of theology in a big way. And I was pursuing that with all my heart. And then my spiritual director said, why are you not doing this? (laughs) And all of a sudden, I mean, I felt this kind of shaking of the foundations, you know. I'm still interested in business and work and, um, you know, a kind of moral account of the market and so on. And I still pursue that. But when my spiritual director said, you know, I think the young women and men would greatly benefit from your insights into this other area, because I was already, you know, kind of working on it, um, pondering Genesis 1 and 2 in particular, and finding much more meaning in the text than I had previously heard from anyone. Um, it really, something fell away, and I kind of turned my attention in toward this topic. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I was, I'm was i a John Paul II fan. He's my guy. You know, I, I'm a Wojtyla scholar, actually. And so um, it wasn't a big leap or anything, but it was, right. was kind of like that. Yeah. And the more I get into it, Brooke, the more I realize how completely I'm obsessed in a way as a scholar with the question. 
because people are suffering so much in our culture, students, older people, children, from the confusion that reigns about so you're obsessed with the with the question, what is a woman, what is a man? Well, with the um, actually, it's that I wouldn't want to put it exactly that way. I'm and obsessed is probably kind of a strong word. I used it as kind of hyperbolic, but you know that I'm just so taken by the question because there's no there's no bottom to it. It's it's really the mystery. The church puts it this way, which I find simple and helpful. Uh, Why? What was God's purpose in making us only male and female, man and woman? What was, he, what, what was his purpose in doing so? And what are the implications of that decision, of that move on his part? And, the, of course, that calls up the depth of mystery that all of us are. But then the question, of course, is that what different, not only what differentiates us, but in what sense are we equally human? And all those questions come to the fore then. You mentioned Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2, and we see right there in the beginning that God's work mm-hmm. was not only creating and making, but composing order out of chaos. So this divine order, right. and that includes light and dark and day and night and land and water and humans and animals and male and female. And so it would stand to reason then when you just observe, and I think Cardinal Seurat has been very prophetic about this, that as the West abandons the Bible and the God of the Bible, that it also is abandoning these distinctions. And so you know, we're we're in Genesis, and then we go to the fall, and in taking the writings of John Paul II on theology of the body, you teach that men and women will suffer differently because of the fall. Right, right, they do. It's evident from the text, right, that the consequences of the fall are different for man and for a woman. You know, he's his his suffering as a result of it takes a different shape than hers. And so, I don't know, I can't tell, would you like me to speak about that particular thing right now? Well, yeah, just a snippet, because I thought it was really fascinating to think about that, where men have, I think you say, like a disordered relationship to things, to mistake persons for objects. So, example, acquisition to work, where they uh, put maybe too much time into that, or usury in a sexual sense, and how that's different to the challenges of, of what comes with Eve. Oh, Sure. So I think before we talk about the fall, we have to talk about the gifts that they were given, because um, the in order to really grasp the significance of what happens in the fall, you first have to revisit Genesis one and two and ask a couple of questions about um, the place that both occupy in the created order. And what you can say about each of them from that, that's a very important question. So if you're, with your permission, I'll start there, and then we'll see um, that the, what happens in the fall is actually a distortion, a turning upside down of the charisms they're given mm. in the garden. Yeah. So um, is that okay, or... Yes, <laughs> and I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm one of your one of your classes. So I want to make sure because Eve, right. one of her charisms yeah. is relationship. Is that right? 
Right. Absolutely. And and let me just let's just start with that, because let's start with um, the order of creation. OK, so as you yourself mentioned, there is a hierarchy, an order to in 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 terms of the order in which God creates. Right. And what if one of the things that I did was go back to the original Hebrew and really parse through what the text actually says in Hebrew, and in doing so, that's how I derive many of these meanings. But um, the Hebrew Hebraic anthropology would absolutely dictate that the Scripture reveals that the first created human human being was a man. But when you understand Hebraic anthropology, you realize that Adam, as a um, uh, you know, um, well, let's see, a, a creature, let's say, it, mentioned in Scripture, within man it pre-exists all of humanity. There's an understanding in in the Hebraic tradition that the one and the many are constantly oscillating between each other. The one contains the many, and the many represents the one. And so all of that is kind of a precursor to understanding that when woman shows up, she's already prefigured in Adam. Mm-hmm. So that's the starting place. And then, um, so, so woman, though, if you think about the order in which God creates, you, you can no longer really maintain the notion that woman is created second and therefore somehow inferior to man in some way. Woman is not created second. She's created last mm. and on the way up. So the the word for helper or helpmate is azair. And azair is a word used in scripture elsewhere to refer to divine aid. So woman is sent to man by God to help man to live, not to be his servant, except if you mean that in the Christian sense, not to do the dishes for him, although she's probably happy to do it, <laughs> but to help him to live. Okay, so so that's that's a starting place. But I also want to hasten to add, just so no one gets the wrong impression, the full text is not just Azair, but Azair Konegdo. And Konegdo is a preposition that means in front of, in the spatial sense. So the divine author is actually, the sacred author, I should say, is indicating to us that she's created last and on the way up, yes, but she is face to face with Adam. They are they they are face to face. They are partners. Woman is not above man, and man is not, nor is she below him. And what I like to say is that um, without man, because of her emergence from man, without man, woman has no place. But without woman, man has no future. Mm. And there, when you're talking, so much of it, I'm hearing complementarity. You hear both in the importance of the togetherness. Absolutely. So um, here's the, you can derive this 
orientation toward persons, which JP2 ascribes to the fact that all women are meant to be mothers, and there's no question about that. But I argue that actually prior to that, um, or at least in addition to it, you can derive much meaning from the fact that Adam pre-exists Eve. When Eve appears, the first thing she sees is Adam's face. Woman has never lived in a created order not already inhabited by persons. And it's not until that moment that Adam actually knows who he is. She reveals to him the gift that he is. And now he says, oh, at last, here's a bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Adam comes to understand himself through his contact with woman. And it's, it's such a beautiful way of understanding it. We don't have to fight with each other. We both occupy a certain pride of place in the scheme of things. And, and we are ordered towards self-gift, both of us. And somehow things have gotten to a state of chaos, I suppose, with radical feminism and the sexual revolution and the, the disorder. And I want to talk about that when we come back. Let's pause for now. Dr. Deborah Savage, professor of theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville, is here. The topic is masculine genius, the complementarity of man and woman. And coming up, the importance of fathers as well. Is there a war on men? We will explore that and more when we come back. My name is Brooke Taylor in for Timory here on Trending. Stay with us. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. In 1968, 10 years before he would become Pope, then Carl, uh, Cardinal Carol Wojtyla wrote in a letter the following. He said, the evil of our times consists in the first place of a kind of degradation Indeed, a pulverization of the fundamental uniqueness of each person, each human person. This evil is even more of the metaphysical order than of the moral order. To this disintegration planned at times by atheistic ideologies, we must oppose, rather than sterile polemics, a kind of recapitulation of the inviolable mystery of the person. That seed of thought later blooming into John Paul II's Theology of the Body, which he laid out in 130 general audiences addressed between 1979 and 1984. And on that theme, our guest has studied and written extensively. She is Dr. Deborah Savage, Professor of Theology at Franciscan University. My name is Brooke Taylor, filling in for Timory today. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being with us. one 914 The phone lines are open. Dr. Savage is with us for the hour. We'd love for you to be a part of the show if you have a question or a thought. And Dr. Savage, before the break, we were talking about Genesis, male and female, even going into Genesis 1-1, the order 
order of creation and just touching on the surface of the depths that you've plumbed on this topic. And this is a biblical worldview that we were exploring. And so I want to also talk about the West. They no longer hold many people that biblical worldview. And then we see that's where the wheels kind of fall off for any sense of logic and reason. Because if you if you has you've begun to kind of litigate it's all of these puzzle pieces that are just infinite. The more you explore, the more you see, and it comes together. And so you think, okay, if I don't have a biblical worldview, we still have biology, we have science, we have neuroscience. But there are influential scholars even rewriting what was once settled science on that. And there's there's one in particular, Joan Roughgarden. I know she's a favorite among scholars and the elite, and she's an evolutionary biologist. She used to teach at Stanford. I believe she's retired now. But she wrote a book called Evolution's Rainbow. And in that, she asserts that the gender binary we believed was fundamentally biological, doesn't find much support in biology. So she goes on to talk about the transgender people also occurred, have occurred throughout history, which we don't dispute that, but that per her quote, the Bible is quite positive about transgender people. So we see what's going on at universities. They're not even hiding it anymore. There's very prevalent propaganda, Marxist um, ideology, gender studies. How as parents, so say daughter Megan goes away to school, she learns this in her gender studies class, she comes home for Thanksgiving, and suddenly she's sharing this at the dinner table, you know, or an introduction to radical feminism, wherein dad is suddenly the oppressor, he's the enemy. What is your response? I mean, immediately, I just think this is why we have to be forming our children from the start about objective truth, natural law, human dignity, because there are so many distortions. But how do we respond to this tidal wave coming at us? Oh, well, I would definitely, in in that sort of case, I'm not sure how much I'd rely on revelation. Not that we shouldn't, but that it's, it's almost unnecessary. I mean, just start with the biology. And I, I, I don't know this woman's work. And I, I tend to, uh, I tend to do what John Paul II suggested we all do, which is not, he said, you cannot, um, um, don't concentrate on fighting evil, concentrate on building up the good. And so I want to clarify right away, my project has been to develop, articulate a robust account of man and woman, one that is scientifically, philosophically grounded, uh, you know, not a pink theology about how great women are, but an actual account of man in relation to woman and woman in relation to man. So I think I would just say to everyone, hold your your spot. Don't give in because it's, it's insane. And I don't, I actually don't care what that woman's credentials are. And the reason I don't is because I have read other medical doctors who are claiming similar things that um, hormones and chromosomes and so on don't have anything to do with man and woman, that the biological foundations of our assumptions our assumptions we've made are completely erroneous 
It is the work, if I can I say this? I think I can on Relevant Radio. It is the work of the devil. Yeah. They are not, I'm not saying those people are devil, devils or, or possessed or anything, but it is the work of the evil one. Hell is where nothing makes any sense. And and they're they're turning everything upside down. The biology is very clear, and the the truth is we are destroying our children, destroying them, pulling them apart by affirming them in this confusion. People want to say that you have to you have to go along with it because otherwise they will the so suicide rates are going up, et cetera, in that community. People have it backwards. The data shows that people are more likely to commit suicide or have terrible medical problems or other anxiety disorders and so on after they have the surgery that often follows from these claims. It's not that you don't let them have surgery so that they won't fall into those pits. When you let them have the surgery, they fall into those pits. So please, your audience has to feel absolutely affirmed in holding the position that there is absolutely such a thing as a man and a woman, and our job is to understand what that means. Let me just say one more thing about this, if, I, if you don't mind. Please. There was a young man who came to one of my talks at Steubenville, at Franciscan. And he was on a podcast that someone sent me. I have never met him, and I don't know his name. But And he wasn't visible on the podcast. He was only speaking. But he was being interviewed because he had decided not to pursue transitioning from being a man to being a well, He had decided not to pursue that uh, decision. And he named as one of the reasons that he heard Dr. Savage talk about man and woman at a talk at Franciscan. There were other reasons. Uh, I wasn't the only one among them. He found Jesus Christ, so that's kind of a big deal. Mm. But he did say that he had never heard anyone explain man and woman that way before, and he felt hopeful. So I want to say we never had an adequate account of man and woman on offer in our tradition. John Paul II got it started. He points to it, but it's not complete in the theology of the body. There's much more to be done. No scholar can do everything. And so I'm, I say, let's keep exploring what it actually means scientifically, philosophically, metaphysically, theologically, so that we can explain ourselves to each other, so that we can honor each other for what God gave us. It is an answer to prayer to hear that story. Thank you for sharing, because I think in a time of of very bleak news and every day, you just, I think also now we're hearing more from that generation, you know, children, unfortunately, who have been mutilated or sterilized and are coming forth and saying, this was a mistake, and now there are lifelong consequences. And when you talked about depression and suicide, that is inconvenient data for the trans narrative. And so, unfortunately, it it is suppressed. And so, 
But what you talked about earlier, how don't focus on evil, but concentrate on building up the good. What a wonderful witness of fidelity you have been in doing that. And just to hear the fruit of this young man's testimony, his story. And I also want to ask, what what role do you think priests and bishops play here? I know I've heard you say that some things in, in seminary that you've observed or as you've taught, that there are just some things priests won't even talk about because they don't want to offend women. They don't want to offend those with a different opinion. We are in purgative times. We know that, no doubt. But what counsel can you offer in that regard? You know, we don't have the choice any longer to to pussyfoot around these issues. All of us need to be um, fearless in our proclamation of the truth. Now, that doesn't mean we don't um, remain uh, governed by a spirit of charity. I mean, uh, in Caritas and Veritate, Pope Benedict uh, points to this again and again, that justice is embedded in charity. Charity is the context within which justice is expressed. So they, they aren't opposed to each other. They're, they're necessary for each for both to both must reign in our conversations with people and in our attitude toward our our brothers and sisters in the Lord or even those who don't believe in the Lord right just humanity in general so you know in all things let charity prevail but um, we are desperate as a culture to have sanity restored I don't know if you've heard Chesterton's quote that at a certain he predicts that at a certain point we'll go to war with each other about whether or not two and two is four. Mm-hmm. There'll be blood in the street, he says, because people will be arguing about whether or not leaves are green in the summer. And so let's remember just this one, let me just add this one little idea or this notion. Knowledge begins in the senses. And my argument is that this is an attack, all of this, on human reason at its origin. If I cannot tell, if I'm, if I'm to pretend that the man sitting across from me is a woman, that is diabolical in its very nature because it is an insistence that I cannot trust the evidence of my senses which, as we all know, is the starting place of human knowledge. Mm. So it's, a, it's an attack on reason itself. Boy, I am... I could make so many t-shirts from your quotables. I'm just taking notes here. We are desperate to have sanity restored. Amen. Oh and this is, oh it is an attack. And so I want to talk a little bit about the guys, because when you talk about attack, I think of our, our poor man. I'm, I'm a mother of four sons, obviously my husband as well. And in our culture today, you write about this so eloquently. You say to traditional masculinity from opening doors for women to lifting heavy objects to going to war and saving people from floods are called forms of toxic masculinity. It is such a dangerous movement or thought ideology because the truth is that if it weren't for men, we'd still be living in caves. The male species is responsible for the fact that civilizations were preserved in advance. And indeed, that's what they were made for. And yet, 
in our era, there is there is the ridicule of men because what they were made for has largely been stripped away and that order has been thrown off, which then ushers in chaos. And so an example of the men opening doors, I would say maybe largely because of radical feminism, you know, the rules are confusing for men now. Are they supposed to open a door? I teach my sons to do so. And then they're blamed for being, you know, sexist if they do. And so maybe you could speak to that as well and this attack on men in our culture. Yeah. And uh, make no mistake about it, there is one. And I but I would and I would like to start by returning to Genesis for a moment. Just to clarify what I think the masculine genius is, I think that would be of interest, right? Because Mm -hmm. that should be our first move. So what we have to recall is that a man is in the garden alone with God for a while. We don't know how long. Um, And God brings everything to him to name them, right? They're looking for a helper for him. We all know the story. One by one, he brings, God brings to man uh, all the creatures, and man, in naming them, takes dominion over them. St. Thomas Aquinas says that man would have had to have had a distinct preternatural gift for him to be able to see into the nature of things in such a way that he could give them the proper name. It's absolutely profoundly masculine to be ordered toward things. Think about it. There's two things in the world. There are things and there are people. Women are oriented toward persons. It's not until woman shows up, or it's at the moment when woman shows up, that human community is introduced into human history. That's a very important thing to acknowledge about woman. But prior to that, man is in a horizon in which he's only, he's surrounded by lower ordered creatures. He's the only one given a job. He's put in the garden to till it and to keep it. That is his work. And when, so, you know, I like to tell a joke about this, that Adam's given this task and he's like, okay, well, I'll be happy to do that for you guys. For eternity, yes. Okay, but when, it's not until woman shows up that he realizes what that, that work is for. That work is for her. He is to work for her good, for the, for the good of the children that they will have, for the good of humanity. He sees that. That gives him his telos. Woman gives him his telos. Now he knows what he's working for, right? And so I say this is a part, clearly a part of God's design. So men's orientation toward things is not a disorder. It does get turned in on itself at the fall, but in the in the garden, it's it's his role, it's his place. And what it makes him is woman's protector, his, her provider, her her everything. He's there for her. So uh, in, you know what I argue is that actually man. In the fall, man's just as responsible as the woman because in that moment he failed her. Mm-hmm. He was supposed to protect her in that moment. He should have said to her, now Eve, I don't think we're supposed to do that. He got the message directly from God. She got it secondhand. And she's not sophisticated with things. She doesn't know that much about them. 
she's just intrigued by the fruit, right, or whatever it is. So Adam failed her in that moment. That's his job, is to protect. And so a man who his instinct is to help a woman lift a heavy object or jump into a burning car and pull people out of it or go to war like the men in Ukraine are going to war and sending their women and children off. That is man's genius, and in my opinion, and it's not just an opinion, we, they deserve our gratitude, not our ridicule, because men for sure have, been the, the, have sustained civilizations, have built them, mm-hmm. have uh, created an, a, a context within which woman, women now can sit in offices with air conditioning and work at a computer or do their, their thing, thing. There's nothing wrong with that at all, but for heaven's sake. And then women will say, well, we could have done that. Okay, well, maybe you could have, but you didn't. <laughs> and then they'll well, say, well, that's because men wouldn't let us. I don't think so. And, and rightly ordered, they really bring in human flourishing. I think that is... Again, that's the complementarity, the ideal. And uh, the former late Prince Primate of Hungary, Cardinal Mincenzi, would talk about that, how that charism of man that they were meant to build and usher forth, you know, um, a, a wonderful human flourishing for civilization they have where the woman's place largely is in the home with the children, the heart, the heart of the man. And the, the man entrusts his heart to her. And I think it was Dietrich von Hildebrand who talked about how woman can see into a man the way that no one else can. And the beauty of that, once that's embraced and understood and lived in proper order, I want to pause there for a moment. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about fathers as we round out uh, the, the end of the conversation. Dr. Deborah Savage is with us. She is the professor of a professor of theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville. The topic is masculine genius, the complementarity of man and woman. More when we come back. My name is Brooke Taylor in for Timory. You're listening to Trending. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back to the program. My name is Brooke Taylor in for Timory. You're listening to Trending and Dr. Deborah Savage is joining us for the full hour of the show today. So much to talk about. Professor of Theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville. And that is providentially timed in the eve of the Memorial of St. Francis of Assisi tomorrow. So we were talking a little bit about the Franciscan intellectual tradition, very much focused on the human person as divine image and humanity connecting us with God and then taking us into what Dr. Savage studies, and that is the masculine genius, femininity, male and female. If you have a question about gender, about theology of the body, call one 914 That's the studio line open now. And for our last segment, Dr. Savage, I want to talk about fathers and just the crisis of masculinity in the culture. It truly is a crisis of masculinity in in so many areas from relationship to identity to 
understanding true manhood and, and biblical chivalry, ultimately, I've heard you say that this crisis is a crisis of fatherhood, and you've devoted a lot of years to studying this. Can you explain that? Oh, how much time do we have again? I know. <laughs> um, you know, I think the right place to start uh, is what ha- with what happened in the fall. Just really quick, and I, I promise not to go on and on. But um, what happens in the fall? So all of a sudden, man, his gift, which was to be the steward of creation, is turned upside down. Now he has to struggle with it. And woman, her gift was her uh, orientation toward persons, her capacity for community. Now that gift is turned upside down. She's going to struggle with relationships. She's going to um, want her husband, even though she knows he's using her husband, in this case, maybe a little loosely defined, let's say. That's going on in college campuses all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and But man now turns, uh, considers everything an object, including woman, right? So his sin is that he forgets that woman is bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh. And he, he forgets and he's, you know, he, he's no longer master of creation. He's lost his place because woman lost hers and vice versa. So the crisis of um, masculinity really sort of begins not exactly there because it's a matter of historical record, but the, um, I think you can trace the difficulties we've faced throughout history to original sin. We forget about it constantly and yet it is always overshadowing each of us, all the time. And this tendency to think of everything as as objects, to seek to dominate, is really a feature of original sin for the man. And that's kind of what he's done, isn't it? I mean, even John Paul II spends a fair amount of time in the letter to women apologizing for past mistakes. We need to acknowledge that mistakes were made. Not by all men, and families flourished, and I believe and mean everything I said about men and our our need to be grateful to them. There's no question about it. But, I mean, let's face it, you know, wars are really hard on women for reasons we don't need to go into, or uh, sometimes they haven't been treated with the respect. So, anyway, so at a certain point, the women in the West said, I've had enough. And we're going to we're going to get the vote, and then that turned into something that no one anticipated, because the sexual revolution, combined with that, convinced everybody that freedom meant sexual freedom. Well, and it's that there's the ripple in the water effect, you know, where it's generational, not just that generation, but the children's children and their children, and so on feel terrible about it. So now we have women, who, and this is a, another historical feature of our situation, who women who think be, the male of the species has always been considered normative for the species. At least that's the impression one gets. So that means women now think the only way to be considered fully human is to act like a man. Mm-hmm. And they're angry. They're very angry 
with men. Um, they, you know, this is a generalization, of course. I'm not. <laughs> but I but I know women who are, and there's lots of them. You see them on the streets at women's marches. A few years ago, they wore those awful pink hats when they were marching down the street in Washington, right? It was, It's just a travesty of what real womanhood really is, right? So um, there, okay, so there, there's a grand truth in their sort of frustration with the situation, but because they haven't embraced who they really are, because they, radical feminism is ordered toward uh, taking on the persona of the man through domination and anger and so all so many other features that women think they need in order to be successful somehow that um, this has turned into an attack on men, right? And I wonder, too, I, I was thinking about the high statistics of, of veterans, first responders who are, are on the brink of suicide, 22 veterans a day that take their own life. And, and we know that largely that's attributed in part to mental health and just the weight, especially of carrying trauma in, in those fields of service. I'm just wondering, is there any evidence that it could also be related in any way to this maladapted perception of masculinity, for example, I mean, how can we better support men? Right. Well, they need to be affirmed for what they truly are, which are, which is a protector of the species. Man knows instinctively that he is expendable in the sense that the, the child, the species can continue. The child will be born, even if the father is no longer on the scene for whatever reason, maybe he went to war, maybe he left, either way. And so the, the man's tendency to risk his own life to protect the life of his family comes out of this incredible, it's a very noble instinct in the man to protect and to serve. And we're telling them, we don't want that anymore. You're, you're bothering me. You're demeaning me. Instead of great, being grateful and gracious in their direction, we're judging them for who they are. And now we've turned it into this thing about toxic masculinity. And it, make no mistake, if you look into the literature on that, what it is, obviously, is an attack on what they call traditional masculinity. But then I started to think, well, what about, is there such a thing as toxic femininity? And there is the, psycho the psychology, the field of psychology has some work having been done on that. And of course, what, what do you think? Toxic femininity is, is a reference to the, the values and the behaviors and the, the tendencies that women have traditionally had, a kind of gentleness, a willingness to sacrifice, to think first of others instead of herself. These are portrayed as toxic characteristics that are destructive of women. So it's it's all a sham. It's a well, sham. Well, and it also, it's, I mean, it's a sham. And I think, you know, there are diabolical harm, hallmarks with that too, because of course, when you look at spiritual warfare, everything is turned upside down. And when you look, really observe radical femininity, or I'm not, sorry, 
or radical feminism. And I remember I had interviewed uh, a nun who had been very involved in the 60s in radical feminism and then had a complete conversion, obviously. And she said, I just remember the harshness. There was such vulgarity in the way that I spoke, profanity often, part and parcel, the, the way this roughness of behavior. And that truly would be characterized as poisonous or toxic. And yet here, these, these beautiful feminine attributes of, of elegance, self-service, and these charisms that are unique to woman, that somehow that's being flagged as a negative. It, I mean, it certainly seems like a diabolical um, trait to flag that. Right. Women are competing for first place in a race that um, no one can win. You know, it's, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, so um, the, the whole, the, you had a question about fathers. Um, the most important person in a little girl's life, just starting with that, is her father. The research is very clear about this. If her father does not respect her, if her father does not affirm her and make and help her to understand, to affirm herself, to see who she is and that she's beautiful and that she has something to offer, she will grow up unsure that she's worth anything. At the same time, a father is absolutely essential in a young man's life. The reason that we have all these young men that are running wild in the streets, even some that are committing murder, etc., you can be sure that those young men are, are most likely without a father in the home. 40% of the children in our country live without a father in the home. And the father is who gives the child a sense of their own identity. Cardinal uh, Angelo Scola in his book, Nuptial Mystery, says that there's two laws that govern human flourishing. Both must be introduced to the children. One law is a law of gratuity. The other is a law of exchange. The woman uh, gives the child, um, teaches the child about the law of gratuity. You are loved. You will always be loved. You feel secure and loved in the woman's embrace. The man's task is to teach the child that nothing is free, that he is not, he did not create himself. He, he didn't just pop out of his mommy's tummy by magic. That he, the father is the symbol of identity for the child. And men have this incredible gift of reigning in their children at the same time allowing them to take risks. And this is um, missing from so many homes. Most of the young men in prison come from fatherless homes. Those statistics are devastating and staggering and to go back to what you said earlier we we are out of time but just i think this is so warranted to emphasize concentrate on building up the good and when we consider the solution to the challenges we face we look at the splendor of the saints saint francis of assisi tomorrow saint faustina coming up saint therese of Lisieux, and just the beauty of virtue that permeates the hearts and we need that thank you so much for your time with us thank you for your work uh, Dr. Deborah Savage at Franciscan University of Steubenville. God bless you. Thank you. My name is Brooke Taylor, and 
Happy to be with you today. In for Timory, I will be back again on Wednesday. Dr. Hochschild will be with us and he will talk about uh, smartphones and you next. The Rosary. God bless you.